There is one teaching which is common to all the traditions of Buddhism and really forms the heart of what the Buddha taught. That is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Dharma is really quite amazing in the sense that it's like a hologram. We can approach any piece of it and any piece reveals the whole. So we look at it in terms of the Four Noble Truths, so the factors of enlightenment, or the Eightfold Path, or the Five Hindrances. And going into any side of it will open up to the whole of the Dharma. The Four Noble Truths really express and explore the whole question of suffering and freedom. The first of these understandings, or the first noble truth, is the truth of suffering. Basically, the Buddha saw the problem. He saw the problem inherent in human-conditioned existence. He saw the unsatisfying nature of all conditioned phenomena. Now, what does conditioned phenomena mean? It's simple. It means everything. (laughs) That is, everything which arises out of conditions. That's conditioned phenomena. Things arising out of conditions. All the elements of our body, all the elements of our mind, all the elements of the world. So he saw that all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfying. So how do we experience this? How do we really see and experience this truth of dukkha? Dukkha is the Pali word for suffering or unsatisfactoriness. How do we see this, touch this for ourselves? We experience dukkha, the suffering, inherent in conditioned existence in several different ways. Some experiences we have, we see very clearly, are painful in themselves. And in Pali, this has the very apt expression of dukkha dukkha. <laughs> in case we missed the point the first time. <laughs> It's pervasive in the world. I mean, this, this level of suffering is all around. We can see it in the world in, in terms of political and social injustice. You know, the amazing amount of suffering that's caused by injustice, by exploitation, by violence, by warfare. And with respect to that, we live, most of us, very blessed lives. We really, for the most part, are living in a realm of fair amount of ease and safety. When you consider the conditions on the whole planet, in very many places, this is not the case. We can experience the painfulness of of our experience 
in our own bodies. And you've certainly had a taste of that in the time that you're here. And when we feel painful sensations, or when the body becomes diseased, the suffering from some illness, as it gets older and it gets weaker, you know, and maybe the sense faculties get dimmer, and the whole process of dying, it's often painful. This kind of painful experience is not limited <clears throat> to just a few. This is a universal aspect of what it means to be alive. There's the pain in the world, there's the pain in the body, there's the pain in the mind, which you've also probably had glimpses of. You know, and there's there's a wide, wide (coughs) spectrum of painful mind states discontent, fear, jealousy, envy, pride, unworthiness, rage, grief, sorrow, loneliness, frustration. And these are all common states that at different times we feel. So this is one meaning of dukkha. One way that when we're really with our experience, we feel it, we know it, it's not theoretical. Another understanding of dukkha, of suffering, is the aspect of things being unreliable because they're impermanent. Simply by the fact that things are continuously changing, that they're not secure, they're not stable, they're not static. No conditioned phenomena can essentially be counted on. Why? Because it doesn't last. It's always quite striking to me when I really tune into this aspect. Where has all our experience gone? Where's the experience of the last sitting? of the last week, of the last month, of the last year. It's water over the waterfall. Things are so ephemeral. And what's surprising is that we know this. And yet somehow in our looking ahead, we think it's somehow going to be different. It's really some quirk of our mind. You know, that hasn't really absorbed or understood this very obvious truth. All meetings, all comings together, inevitably end in separation. All accumulation of anything inevitably ends in dispersion. Our life inevitably ends in death. A very big part of our practice is really opening to what is so obviously true. 
So there's the dukkha, the suffering of painful experience. There's the dukkha or the unsatisfying quality that comes because nothing is reliable, nothing can really be counted on. There's a third kind of dukkha, third kind of suffering, and it's called the suffering, it's called sankara dukkha in Pali, and it just means the suffering of things needing constant attention. I think there's an analogy (coughs) to the second law of thermodynamics about which I know really nothing. (laughs) 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 I think that what it says is that a system left to itself will tend to disorder. And that it needs some kind of input, some kind of energy to stay ordered. I had this lesson, um, very strikingly, it was another house story. You know, when I moved into the house, and it was quite striking to me that I was just living there happily, and that all by itself, it got dirty. And that to keep it clean needed and <laughs> needed constant attention, it needed effort to keep it clean. Well, this is this third law, this is this third kind of dukkha. You know, the fact that things need a constant effort to keep it together. There's a basic nature, the basic characteristic of suffering in the world and in our lives, association with what is unwanted, suffering. When we're separated from what we do want, it's suffering. This is how the Buddha was talking about it. He said association with the unloved, separated from the loved. When we're with what we don't want, we suffer. When we don't have what we do want, we suffer. Resisting what comes to us, we suffer. Holding on to what changes, we suffer. If we want to understand this truth of suffering in our lives, we have to look. We really have to investigate and explore for ourselves. But some people might ask the question, why should we pay attention to this? You know, we seem to be leading our lives fine. Why should I pay attention to all this suffering? It takes a tremendous amount of courage and willingness and openness of heart to really see things as they are. It's very easy to live in a world of denial, to live in a world of avoidance. But there are two great consequences of this denial. It's not without a price. 
And we can live in denial of the suffering in ourselves and in the world, but there is a very great price to pay. The first consequence of this denial is that when we are living in resistance to what is true, we create a situation of struggle. And that very resistance to what we don't like in very many ways is feeding it. Just give you a couple of examples. You know, we're sitting with pain. I'm sure you've noticed the difference between what happens when you get very soft and accepting and open and you're just feeling the pain and the pain is simply there or when we're resisting the pain resisting, avoiding, denying what happens? The body contracts, it tenses behind it and that, tens- that tensing only creates another knot it creates more pain We're actually feeding that whole system that we're resisting. Years ago, I was practicing in Bodh Gaya in India. And this was at the very beginning. I was living in this little hut. Uh, It was a tiny hut. It was six feet by seven feet. Uh, And for a while, it was a double room. But at this time, I, was, I had it to myself, and I was sitting on my bed. It didn't have a door. It only had a canvas flap. So I was sitting on my bed, and this cat walks in and kind of plops down on my lap. And it really annoyed me. <laughs> because I was sitting there. This is, but guys, the place the Buddha was enlightened. You know, and I had gone there, and I was going to get enlightened. <laughs> and this cat was disturbing me. <laughs> So I kind of picked it up and tossed it out you know, of the door. It came right back in. <laughs> and I tossed it out again and it came right back in. And this went on, this little dance between the cat and myself. went on for about half an hour. And I was going in. And I was getting more and more irritated. At a certain point, and it took quite a while, I realized there was no way I could keep the cat out. Because there was no door in my heart. <laughs> And so finally the cat came back in. Okay, I surrendered. I didn't see any choice. And I just sat there and the cat was on my lap. Everything was fine. And in about five seconds, the cat got up and left. (laughs) I owe a lot to that cat because it really taught me a lesson which I have applied many times. Very often, it's our resistance to something which is feeding it. And if we can just relax and open up to whatever it is, to whatever we're finding unpleasant, the situation resolves itself. There's perhaps a more consequential result of closing off the suffering, of denying it, of avoiding it. When we are denying or avoiding the pain, the suffering, either that's in the world or in ourselves, what happens? We become very defended. 
We need to become defended if we're going to keep it out. So we become defended, we become armored. But what happens is that this very process of defensiveness, of armoring, also closes us off to the wellspring of compassion within us. How does this happen? What's the connection? Compassion is that feeling in the heart which is moved to alleviate suffering in others, in ourselves. It's that movement of the heart. It's the wish, the motivation to take action to alleviate suffering. It's a feeling which was described by that Zen poet Ryokan I mentioned the other night. Another one of his haiku poems really captures the essence in some way of this compassionate feeling. He wrote, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. A beautiful expression of just that open-heartedness. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. What opens us to the feeling of compassion is precisely our deepening experience of suffering. It's the awareness of suffering that allows compassion to arise. If we don't let the suffering in, we're also closing off that spring of compassion within us. So in our exploration of the first noble truth, what the Buddha called the truth of suffering, we are really exploring, we're becoming aware of, we're practicing a willingness to open to the suffering that's in us, to the suffering that's in the world. And also to the ways in which we've been conditioned, habituated to close off. We need to see very precisely how is it that we're closing off. We've mentioned a little bit of this with respect to pain, painful feelings in the body. All the ways, all the strategies of the mind for avoiding simply opening to the feeling. It could be self-pity, it could be downright aversion. No, I hate this pain. It could be bargaining, it could be sidelong glances. Now we kind of look at it out of the corner of our eye, but we're not really opening to it. We look to see how we close off to different emotions, to the painful emotions which are the ones that we're not opening to. We look to see how we close off to difficult people in our lives. Somebody who's just difficult, they annoy us, they irritate us. How we relate to them is not so different than how we relate to the pain in the knee. We contract, we pull back, we defend. We're not letting that suffering in. We're not allowing ourselves simply to feel 
the unpleasantness of it. And in backing up, in closing off, we lose any possibility of connection or compassion. We really want to see carefully in our practice, in our lives, all these times when we're moving away from something that is painful. We're moving away, we're looking away from something that is unpleasant. An extreme example of this is a story told to me by a friend. This friend was saying that his father and grandfather were driving in a car on the day Pearl Harbor was bombed. So his father was just uh, a young man and his grandfather was um, obviously older. (laughs) So they're driving in the car and the news comes across on the radio about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the first thing that his grandfather says to his father, don't tell your mother. (laughs) That's a big one to keep out. It's hard to stay open. <laughs> it is. I mean, that is an extreme example, but it, it really captures the same move that we make a lot. That move not to want to see, not to want to open to. Realizing the first noble truth, really exploring this first noble truth of suffering, is the practice of compassion. They're inextricably linked. Compassion is the practice of letting things in. It's letting in the pain in the body. It's letting in painful emotions. It's letting in difficult people. Letting in painful situations in the world. It's only when we let it in, when when we're willing to be with it, that compassion comes forth. I recently saw two movies which were tremendously inspiring examples of the development of compassion in exactly this way. One I'm sure you all know about of Schindler's List. The other was this movie Romero, which is about the life of the archbishop in El Salvador who was assassinated. I think in, I forget exactly, 1980 maybe. In both of these cases, these men started out living in the midst of tremendous suffering and yet living in a way that was really quite impervious to it, unaware, in a way, of the the level of suffering that was there. And in the movie, which 
documented the unfolding of their lives, it was incredibly inspiring because it showed over the course of time, as they let the suffering in, the tremendous, heroic, courageous response of compassion that came forth. And it came from letting things in. That's what our practice is. And that is the practice of understanding the first noble truth of the Buddha's teaching, the truth of suffering. The second noble truth of the Buddha's teachings is understanding the causes of suffering. How does suffering arise? And when things are analyzed down to their root cause, Buddha saw that the cause of suffering is attachment, is craving, is grasping, is clinging. It's very obvious that if we cling to that which changes, we suffer. Everything changes. So any clinging at all is going to be the cause of grief. Are we clinging to our bodies staying a certain way? We do, mostly. Do we, do we cling to people staying a certain way or to situations remaining the same? If we cling to that which is changing, which in its nature is changing, there will be grief. So really, in some way, the essence or the heart of our spiritual journey is to discover, to see for ourselves, where are we clinging? Where are we holding on? Where are our attachments? And we have to see this directly for ourselves. We have to bring it from a theoretical level, really to the immediacy of direct experience for ourselves. Because that's where the transformation takes place. It's not enough to kind of know these are the four noble truths of the Buddha. That doesn't do much. We have to see it. And that's what this whole practice is about. What are some of the things we're attached to? Very obvious class of experience that we're attached to are sense desires or sense pleasures. And we each have our own particular variety of addictions of varying degrees. Sometimes they're very strong, sometimes they're mild. You know, we can be addicted in one way or another to food, or to sex, or to comfort, or to beauty, or to whatever it is. We each have our own particular collection. I'm quite addicted to spy novels. (laughs) Give me a good spy novel, I'm delighted. What's the problem with these desires? Why are they the cause of suffering? When we really look, 
you know, in our experience, we see that these sense pleasures don't deliver on their promise of happiness. Now, the desire arises in the mind, do me and be happy. You know, fulfill me and be happy. So we do it again and again and again and again, endlessly. Are we happy? For the moment. But if they really did it for us, there's no way in the world you'd be here. I mean, this is not most people's idea of a vacation. (laughs) And yet, it really is the best vacation. It's a vacation from grasping. It's a vacation from aversion. We're beginning to see how that could be possible. We go after different sense pleasures, whether they're the physical senses or pleasures of the mind, because of the pleasant feelings associated with them. That's why we go after them. They're pleasant. But as we know, and hopefully increasingly see very vividly, these pleasant feelings don't last. And so we have to go after another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. There is no end to it. We've all experienced countless pleasant feelings. It's not that it's something we've been deprived of. You know, and, well, let me get a few more. We've had many, many, many. It's very instructive to watch this movement of the mind that keeps going after the next hit, the next pleasure, the next wanting, the next craving. Because we see this endless movement of the mind. This is the movement of rebirth whether it's the rebirth from one life to the next or from moment to moment. It keeps us on this wheel, in the Buddhist terminology, the wheel of becoming. You know, it's this reaching for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and there is no end to it. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy ourselves. That's not the implication. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy different pleasures that come in our lives. It is imperative that we deeply understand the transitory nature of them so they don't delude us into thinking, yes, this is going to make me happy, this is going to bring fulfillment. That is the tremendous delusion in our lives. And we need to see not only that they're transitory, but we need to see that if we make the accumulation of pleasant feelings, whether of the mind or the body, if we make that the measure of our choices, this becomes the reference point for our lives, it closes us off, 
closes off that willingness to be open to suffering. If we think that the enjoyment of pleasant things is the reason for living, obviously we're not going to want to open to what's painful. If we're unwilling to open to what's painful in life, in ourselves, we also don't open to compassion. We need to keep this in our minds very clearly. The great gift of the Dharma reveals possibilities of happiness which are far greater than the happiness of momentary sense pleasures. We see vast new possibilities that begin to open up. One of the very liberating things we can see, particularly in the silence and the precision of a retreat, and this is a very subtle point, but one that has tremendous liberating power, we can begin to see that wanting is a choice. Now, often we don't see that. The wanting is in the mind, the desire is in the mind, and we think, well, that's who I am. That's who I am, and I just have to accept that. To get underneath the wanting, to see that we are choosing to stay on that channel. We don't have to. I'd like to read something from Stephen Mitchell's book. I don't know whether you know, Stephen Mitchell is a poet and translator. He translated a lot of Rilke poems, um, Chinese texts, Tao Te Te Ching. This is from a book of his own poetry. It's called The Myth of Sisyphus. Do you know the the Sisyphus rolling up this rock? He was condemned to roll up the rock to the top of this mountain, and just as it got to the top, it would fall down. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with that rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. We're a lot like Sisyphus. So attachment pleasant feelings is one big area that we need to look at. Another area of attachment that's very strong in our lives is attachment to views and opinions. Now, how much conflict in the world between cultures, between countries, between couples comes because of attachment to views, attachment to opinions. We have certain opinions and we can become very self-righteous 
Yes. <laughs> this feeling of being right. Now, in, in the great work of Proust, Remembrance of Things Past, he has a beautiful section where he talks about how art is a window into another country. Now, it opens up, art opens up a whole world for us that we might not necessarily see for ourselves. Well, each person opens up a window to another country. But we can only see that, we can only appreciate that if we don't hold on so tightly to our particular views on things. Every view, every opinion is coming from a particular perspective. Can we acknowledge that everybody is coming from a particular perspective? It engenders a tremendous amount of respect for one another and genuine interest. There's one Latin American poet wrote, if you want to talk, first ask a question and then listen. (laughs) That's a great suggestion for communication. Okay, there's attachment to pleasant feelings. There's attachment to our opinions or views. There's attachment, what in the, the classical Buddhist text called rites and rituals. Because in the time of the Buddha, many people believed in these rites and rituals. You know, if you go bathe in the Ganges, your sins will be purified and you'll be free. Many, many like that. And the Buddha was saying that's not what causes freedom. Updating it a little bit, Trungpa Rinpoche had a wonderful expression. He called it spiritual materialism. You know, where somehow we use our spiritual practice in a way that actually strengthens the sense of self, sense of ego. So we have to be very careful that we're not, that the self, the I, is not co-opting our practice. And this happens often when we become attached to a particular form. Now, all the forms, all the methods, all the techniques are fingers pointing at the moon. It's ridiculous to keep looking at the finger, to get attached to the finger. One writer, Wei Wu Wei, he expressed it. He said that many people are worshipping the teapot instead of drinking the tea. (laughs) We want to be careful of that because it can happen quite easily. Second noble truth, the cause of suffering is attachment in all its forms, attachment to pleasant feelings, to opinions, to spiritual materialism. Perhaps the deepest attachment we have, the most fundamental, the root cause of suffering, which we've talked about before, is the attachment to the idea, the concept of self, of I. This is the great hallucination of our lives. It's the construction of a reference point for experience to which suffering adheres. We're creating this reference point of self, of I. And suffering adheres to that creation. 
his favorite expression of one Sri Lankan monk, he said, no self, no problem. <laughs> and it's true. But our attachment to this way of experiencing things is very strong, as we all know. When we are not clearly, precisely, intimately aware with the changing momentary nature of things, when we're not seeing it directly and cleanly, what happens is the old habit of mind jumps in to identify with various parts of our experience. I'm thinking, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, my pain. Right there, we've constructed, we've made up, we've built, we've fabricated this notion of self. I'd like to suggest an experiment for you to go through the rest of the evening and tomorrow noticing very carefully as you're going through the day, those moments when you can really feel that constriction of self, of I. You're going along, everything's fine. Kind of just free flow of experience. Something happens and there's a tightening. It might be a tightening around a wanting. You know, all of a sudden you're going along and then a wanting comes in the mind. You can feel that constriction. Or maybe it's some reaction to something, some kind of aversion. Or being lost in some emotional state. Just notice, notice the many times in the day that the sense of self is created. It's not the natural condition. The natural condition is open awareness. But when we're not paying attention, and even when we are paying attention out of long habit, Something happens. We identify with something right there is rebirth. And notice at those times how we can settle back right in that moment, settle back into simple awareness and the whole sense of self, of constriction, of contraction evaporates. It's quite amazing. I'd like to talk about something now related to this, which usually we just talk about at the end of a three-month retreat, because it really is something that's quite profound and deep. But it has such potential for freeing the mind that I'd just like to, to do it. But it'll take a little like a little extra concentration. One of the most frequent teachings in all of the Buddhist discourses, you can read it, countless of the suttas of the discourses, are his teachings of the five aggregates. And this teaching of the five aggregates really explains or unpacks what is actually happening in each moment of experience. 
What are these five aggregates? One is the aggregate of physical sensations, material things. Okay, so we're quite familiar with that. We feel different sensations in the body. That's the aggregate of rupa. It's called rupa in Pali, physical, physical sensations. The second aggregate of experience is the feeling quality associated with each moment. That is, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? The third aggregate of experience is perception. That is, that quality of mind which recognizes what the object is. So we recognize it as pressure or tightness or heaviness. That's perception. Has to do with concepts, has to do with memory. Okay, so do you see what's happening? The Buddha is describing in any moment of experience what are the components in that experience. There's physical sensations, there's the feeling component, pleasant or unpleasant, neutral, there's the perception, that is the aspect of recognition. The fourth aggregate he called the aggregate of tendencies, which just means all of the factors in the mind which condition how we relate to the experience. Greed, hatred, love, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, pliability, stiffness of mind. All of these, all of these are called the tendencies or habits of mind, of how we relate to what's happening. And the fifth aggregate is consciousness, which is simple awareness, simple knowing of what it is. Okay, so the Buddha said, this is all that's going on. That every experience we have can be analyzed in terms of these five aggregates. They all arise together. They don't happen sequentially. All five aggregates are always happening together. But at different times, one or another may be predominant. When we look at our experience in this way, it really frees the mind from the sense of self. It deconstructs the sense of self. We see that there's no self there. That each experience is just composed of these five aggregates. Physical sensations, feelings, perceptions, tendencies, and awareness, consciousness. It helps free us from the sense of self and therefore frees us from all the suffering attendant upon the sense of self. Something as, as we all continue in our Dharma practice, we begin to experience that our deepening understanding of anatta, of selflessness, is the source of endless blessings in our lives. It's like it's like a magic jewel of blessing. Because the understanding of selflessness frees us or deconditions the habits of grasping, of aversion, of all the things that cause us suffering. Okay, this is this is the preamble. Just a, this there's a very brief kind of explanation of the five aggregates. Buddha gave a whole series of discourses 
which unpacks and dispels the notion of self just in a, in a very incisive way. One of, these, one of these discourses is the story of a monk, a young monk. His name was Anuradha. You know, in India at that time, there were a lot of monks and nuns and ascetics and wanderers of all kinds. It was, it was really, must have been quite an amazing time, you know, for spiritual awakening. Anyway, Anuradha was out in the countryside someplace, and these other wanderers came to him and asked him a question. They were talking about the Dharma, and they framed the question in a the typical fashion of Indian philosophy. Okay, so don't get too thrown off by the question. They asked whether the Buddha exists or doesn't exist after death. Or both exists and doesn't exist. Or neither exists nor not exist. Okay, that's kind of a formulaic of Indian philosophy. You know, it's, it's expressed in that way. More simply, we say the question is, does the Buddha exist or doesn't exist after death? And it's really about us as well. And Anuradha said, this monk replied, the Buddha is spoken of in ways different than this. And then all these wanderers laughed at him. They reviled him. So Anuradha naturally felt quite badly. And he went back to the Buddha and he said, you know, why were they laughing at me? Why was that answer incorrect? What was so wrong? So then the Buddha asked Anuradha a series of questions. In listening to this, think of it as the Buddha asking you these questions. They're not hard. Uh, <laughs> but really give some thought. It's just imagine that it's the Buddha asking you these questions because the culmination of them is a very profound understanding. And it's just a very logical sequence. Okay, first question. Is the body permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, O oh Lord. This is Anuradha answering. Did you all get that one right? <laughs> really, pay attention to this. You know, it may sound simple, but it's actually very profound. Are feelings permanent or impermanent? He's going through the five aggregates now. Are perceptions, tendencies, consciousness permanent or impermanent? Anuradha answers, impermanent, O Lord. Is what is impermanent satisfying or unsatisfying? Unsatisfying, O Lord. Is what is impermanent, unsatisfying, what is of the nature to change, is it proper to regard that 
as this is mine. This belongs to me. This is myself. This is I. Okay, really think about this. Is it proper? Does it make sense to say that which is momentarily changing? Does it make sense to say, this belongs to me, this is I, this is self? It's gone in the next moment. Okay, no bante. Bante is a, a poly word of respect. No reverence, sir. Okay. Now this set of questions gets a little... Now, Anuradha, now yogis, do you regard the Buddha's body, do you regard the Buddha's body as being the Buddha? Surely not. Oh, Lord. Do you regard the Buddha's feelings these moments of pleasant, unpleasant neutrality. Do you regard these feelings as being the Buddha? Surely not. It goes through the five aggregates. Do you regard perceptions, tendencies, consciousness as being the Buddha? Remember, we just answered those other questions. Is impermanent, does it make sense to call itself I? Do you regard the Buddha as being something apart from these things. Okay, we've just seen, it doesn't make sense to say, yeah, this body is the Buddha, these, these physical elements are the Buddha, no. These feelings are the Buddha, no. These perceptions are the Buddha, no. Is the Buddha something apart from these things? Something different than this? No, Bhante. Do you regard the Buddha as having no body, no feelings, no perceptions, no tendencies, no consciousness? Do you regard the Buddha as something which does not have these things? No, Bhante. Then, since in this very life, the Buddha is not to be met with, in reality, not to be found. Is it proper to say of him, he can be spoken of in some way after death? In this very life, the Buddha is not to be found, is not to be met with. He's not any one of the aggregates. He's not apart from the aggregates. He's not someone who doesn't have the aggregates. The very notion of Buddha, of self, of Joseph, of any one of us, the very notion of Buddha is not to be found, not to be met with. There is no self, no I there at all. What happens is an appearance due to certain conditions. The conditions being these changing, this interplay of the aggregates. The five aggregates are there in in interconnection, interrelationship, and they display an appearance. An analogy for this is when we see a rainbow. A rainbow is an appearance due to conditions. There's the 
water in the air, the moisture in the air, and the, the air and the light and however it works. Is the rainbow the moisture? No. Is the rainbow the sunlight? No. Is the rainbow the air? No. The rainbow as a thing is not to be found. It is an appearance arising out of certain conditions coming together. Each one of us is like that rainbow. An appearance due to conditions. So after Anuradha had answered all this correctly and saw, yes, the Buddha is not in truth to be found, Buddha replied, well said, Anuradha, both formally and now, it is only this that I teach you, what suffering is and what is its end. That's what the teachings are all about, suffering and its end. We need to see through this illusion of the concept of self, the concept of I. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering, which is attachment. Attachment to pleasant feelings, attachment to opinions, spiritual materialism, attachment to this notion of self, this notion of I. The third noble truth is the end of suffering, putting down the burden. We can see it in a moment when we free the mind from defilement. Notice, desire is there, it's there, it's there, it's there, and in a moment it's not there, notice the difference. We're caught in anger, we're lost in anger, we're lost in fear. We feel it, feel it, feel it, identified with it. Notice the moment when we no longer identify with it. Notice the freedom in the mind in that moment. We're let out of the grip of that identification. We're let out of the prison of self. We can glimpse this, we can taste it, we can touch it if we're paying attention to our experience. The end of suffering is also the experience of the unconditioned coming to zero. And there are many many words for it in the Buddhist tradition. Unborn, unformed, unconditioned, nibbana. Just another little household example of this. I'm sure you're all familiar with the experience kind of being in a room, like in the kitchen, uh, with the refrigerator humming. But you don't really know it's humming until it stops. And then all of a sudden, the the humming stops. 
You know, there's that peace of the humming stopping. We don't even know that kind of the subliminal tension of it humming until it's stopped. And then it's that feeling of relief. In much the same way, this opening to the unconditioned, to the unborn, the unformed, the Buddha, the Buddha described it as there being no higher happiness than peace. The third noble truth is the end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the path, the path which we've been practicing of mindfulness. It's the path of morality, the path of developing concentration, the path of intuitive wisdom. Speak more about this Sunday morning. The great power of wakefulness is that in any moment we can cut through attachments, aversions, sort of hopes and fears. In any moment, we simply rest in that quality of natural spontaneous awareness. Hearing a sound, being with a thought, being with an emotion, can we rest in that place? I'd like to do just like a one or two minute experiment now. Just to sit. Sit for a moment or two. Okay, sit and don't do anything. And don't try not to do anything. Just it's like put it all down and see what happens. And everything happens all by itself. T.S. Eliot expressed it very beautifully. He said, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Taking these few moments of not doing, allowing everything to happen by itself. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well.